Live from Cap Radio in Sacramento, this is Insight. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. Over the past couple years, we've learned or have been reminded that Sacramento is home to diasporas from all over the world. From Afghanistan, following the chaotic and deadly U.S. withdrawal, leaving the country in the hands of the Taliban, to Ukraine, which has just entered its second year of war. And there are many other examples, from Syria to Latin America, just to name a few, of people and families fleeing their homeland for safety abruptly uprooted as refugees. A significant piece of adjusting to a new country and a new way of life comes from schools, which are far more than just a classroom. They're a hub of resources for students and their families, and in doing so, become part of their new community. A reporter followed one school district in Sacramento County, San Juan Juan Unified, which has schools where the vast majority of students are English language learners, with many students who are also refugees, a journey that often comes with trauma. That journalist is Sosan Marar, who covers school accountability and culture for the Sacramento Bee. Sosan, welcome. Nice to see you again. Nice to see you, too. Thank you for having me. So as a reporter here in Sacramento, I mean, I learned about our area long being a destination for refugee families, home to large Afghan and Slavic populations. And those are just two examples. When did you begin connecting this reality to your reporting as a school accountability journalist? So, you know, I've been going to campuses for a, a few years now, you know, Obviously, there was a, a lapse in that during the pandemic, but it, it's very visible at some of these schools. You know, I, I did a story a couple years back in San Juan Unified, and just going to the campus, it was very clear that these schools were very diverse, and there were a lot of newcomers. And just talking to editors, we realized that there's a story there. There's a story to be told about what the schools are doing to um, accommodate these students and provide the resources that they need. Yeah. Following the U.S. withdrawal in Afghanistan, there were several local families and students who were stranded in that country. And I know you're very familiar with that. And they were just desperately trying to find a way back to the states, to California. When I followed one family within Sac City Unified after a really scary, uncertain ordeal, they were able to come back safely thanks to, in large part, to their elementary school principal. You also found a common thread of educators and school staff really just going above and beyond for these students. Absolutely. These students um, are, again, students that were very vulnerable and needed a lot of support. And one thing I learned in particular in this, the, the latest reporting is that these students were very different than the earlier wave of Afghan, um, Afghan families that were coming here. Early on, uh, Sacramento saw a, a wave of Afghan families that were coming that, were, um, that had special immigrant visas. So these are families that worked with the U.S. government. They either worked as translators or with NGOs. And so because of that, a lot of them were already familiar with America, or at the very least English. Uh, But these families were refugees. A lot of them don't speak English. And the school district themselves really understood that and said, we have to give them the additional support that they need. How did you end up working with San Juan Unified and learning from two specific schools, Dyer Kelly Elementary and Star King K-8? So, Simply put, we asked for the data. We asked where are uh, where do you have the con- the most concentration of uh, refugees? Where are they? Um, where are all your English language learners? And to my surprise, uh, you know, Dyer Kelly has a population of seventy three percent of English language learners. Wow. So that school has about seven hundred students. Over five hundred of them uh, speak English as a second language. Uh, about a third of them, more than a third of them, are refugees. Um, and there are similar numbers at Star King K through eight. They have a 
larger concentration of English language learners. You know, it's particularly because of the neighborhoods. A lot of the families are settling in those areas, uh, mostly because some of the resources and some of the centers are, are in that Arden Arcade area. So how is San Juan Unified and these campuses responding to, to these new challenges? So visiting the campuses, they have just a countless number of um, programs for them. Uh, they have after-school cooking programs. They have uh, a, something called a newcomer support program where um, they are able to pair up some of these um, cultural, uh, what they call cultural brokers. They have about 17 of them in their school district. Um a lot of these um, employees are following them to the classroom, ensuring that they have translators if they need them for assignments or to communicate with their teachers. They have bilingual instructional assistants. They even have a Saturday academy for some of these families to kind of help them, uh, you know, assimilate and, and really integrate these families into the school district family. When you mentioned that, you know, roughly three quarters of the students at Dyer Kelly are English language learners. I mean, it's not just one language. There's a variety of languages. How do they overcome that challenge. Right. And, and you know, being in California, a lot of these school districts, that second language is, is usually uh, Spanish. You have Farsi, Dari, uh, Arabic, uh, Russian. I mean, you have just so many other languages. So they ensure that they have enough uh, employees that speak those second languages. They have hired uh, quite a few um, employees that speak Dari and speak Farsi that are stationed at uh, schools. Oftentimes they're moving. They're a bit mobile from school to school. Um, Star uh, Star King K-8 through told me that they had such a need at their school that they uh, requested that they have an employee just stationed at their school to go from classroom to classroom. I mean, that is the, the you can tell that the need is really there. So they are ensuring that they're hiring enough employees and enough staff to really uh, sit with these students and, and make sure that they're well accommodated for. And language is just one component. There's also more nuanced differences when it comes to culture and, and customs. How do they um, learn about just cultural competence? You know, that's a good question. I think that's something that they grow to learn every day. I mean, these students are learning from their peers. Uh, they are learning, um, you know, additional cuisines after school. I mean, they do this, um, you know, this really fun program where the families can join, younger siblings can join. They're learning cuisines from different countries. Uh, it's a really exciting time where they get to kind of integrate their own um, cultural uh, foods. Uh, you know, one one program at Dyer Kelly is is a play that they that they're doing. They've done numerous plays. Uh, they worked on Frozen. So these these kids are kind of learning what the entertainment scene looks like on campuses, and it's just a way to integrate the students, give them confidence, and show them that school is a fun place. But there's there's also different cultural aspects in the U.S. that they're excited to learn about. One of the big challenges that you highlighted that was really just incredible to me in terms of attaching it to a solution was transportation. And that transportation is a huge problem for a lot of these families. And one of the solutions was meeting students where they literally are, you know, off campus. In one case, an apartment complex where a lot of these families lived. I mean, that's just amazing that, that they came up with that solution. Right. And, and that principle was was amazing. I think they were noticing um, that there really wasn't a lot of parent participation at that school. I asked her, do you have a PTA or a PTO? And they didn't. Um, they really wanted to show the school that, you know, if, if you're unable to come to campus, we'll meet you there. Uh, they brought some programs. The Sacramento Library came. Uh, you know, I think they brought their mobile and, and they came and they um, did some activities for the kids. Transportation is an issue. I mean, there are students in San Juan Unified that are struggling to 
cross the street with a crosswalk. I mean, these are things that are new to some families. A lot of these families only came two months ago. So the school district, San Juan Unified, really has worked hard to address some of these um, concerns, some of these barriers for these students, uh, and in hopes that, you know, time to come, like, months later or a few years later, that these students will um, have additional resources and, and feel more confident, you know, in their families coming to campus and and, and really meeting the parents, the, t- the teachers there. And what really struck me was also the gratitude that was shown by those parents at the apartment complex when school staff arrived. Right. Uh, the principal told me that, uh, you know, when she met the, the parent, the teacher's excuse me, the parents, she joined with teachers. And as the parents were looking out their windows from the apartments, they had come out with tea and some treats. Uh, and they had asked the principal to share it with all the, te- with all the teachers that were there. Uh, it was a way for them to show their hospitality. And, you know, I think it was really important for the parents to see that, you know, they're coming from countries that parents are a bit more removed from campuses. They, they put a lot of trust in the schools to educate their children. You know, the, the kids usually walk to campuses to walk walk to the makeshift schools that are available for them in their home countries. And it's we do things a bit differently here in the U.S. that um, we do want parent involvement. So I think that relationship is growing. And when you mentioned that some of these families came just a couple months ago or even within the last year or two, I mean, trauma and stress is also attached to that. And it's very real. And children can often feel what parents are going through. Um, The family that I uh, followed that returned to Sac City Unified, um, that family essentially professionally had to start over. You know, and that's that's the case for many families. How do these schools overcome the language barriers to actually help heal and provide support for mental health needs? That's a good question. I think the language aspect is just, a, you know, I don't want to say a small part of it, but it's just a piece of it. A lot of these children are coming with a lot of compounded trauma. Um, the school district does provide um, social emotional support that's really important. Um, And they do that in their language. So, you know, there are translators on campus. The students can sit with them, uh, talk to them. You know, they're instructional aides in in some ways, but they're also there to really, you know, help the students adjust. And, And like you said, I mean, a lot of these students fled recently in the last year, in the last few months, um, fled Afghanistan uh, when the Taliban took over. A lot of these students came from Syria. I spoke to one student um, who came just a couple months ago. He had lived in Jordan, uh, so he hadn't seen much of the war in Syria. But he told me that he lost family members in the earthquake in Turkey. Right. So, you know, these students are, are coming to class, you know, leaving home. There's a lot of stress at home. Um, they might not be able to communicate some of their fears, some of their anxiety with their family members. They might not even understand a lot that's really happening um, within the walls of their home. And the school district is ensuring that they have the um, support on campus in their language so they are able to really express themselves to the staff if they need help. It was incredible that a teacher applied for a grant and used the money to fund therapists to speak not only with students but with families. And the turnout was quite impressive. I mean, it filled the auditorium for two nights, right? Right. I think that's just absolutely reflective of the need. Um, this teacher was um, applied for this grant, about $20,000, and she brought, uh, she flew in a therapist from the East Coast who is Afghan herself. And, you know, she basically explain to the parents that whatever your 
feeling, whatever the struggles you're going through, this is normal. It's okay to express the frustration. It's okay to feel the frustration that you have, that you're starting over here, that you might have been a doctor in your home country um, and, and now you're not. You know, these are these are normal feelings. I think it empowered a lot of these families to know that they're not alone and to know that they can pick up, um, you know, all these pieces and, and rebuild their lives here. Um, the number of families that attended that night, I think, was really reflective of the work that that has that needs to be done um, in our community. Right. And taking into account everything that's going on, everything that we're talking about, how do schools or measure or even factor in academic performance? Is that even a priority? You know, academic performance is always, you know, a, a top priority. But one thing I learned visiting these two schools is that they really want to see progress. I mean, these students are intelligent, right? They're they're coming They've, they've been in school. Some of them may not have been, but they've been in school. It's just this, this really significant language barrier. So what's great about these teachers and um, administration is they're understanding that as long as they're making progress, as long as they're able to, you know, reach certain milestones that they've kind of created for, for these students, that's what they want to see, right? Um, you know, English will will grow on them. It'll take years for them um, to improve their English, and that's okay. I think when you're in a school district, and particularly in schools where a lot of the classroom is 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 really at the same pace that you are, I think that helps them significantly. Finally, I want to end on a personal note because you tweeted that you had this interaction with two girls who are also Muslim. Can you share that interaction and what that meant to you? Yeah, that was that was a really incredible moment in my career. So we were at uh, Dyer Kelly. I was with my the SACB photographer Hector, and he captured a moment where these two second graders walked by and and saw me. You know, and I I wear a hijab, a Muslim headscarf, and and they asked me, "Are you are you Muslim?" They were so excited, and I told them, "Yes, I am," and I, I hope that moment for them you know, reminds them that they could be anything they want to be. And, you know, while there are Afghan uh, female reporters in um, Afghanistan and, you know, they, they wear a hijab as well, I think what's really important for these young girls to know is that when they come to this country, they don't have to shed their self-identity. Um, they can be proud Muslims and, and wear hijab here. And it's not antithetical to being an American. You know, these these identities can, can be um, one in this country. And I think it just also highlights that we are journalists, but we're also human first. Absolutely. Yes. Sosan, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Sosan Marar covers school accountability and culture for the Sacramento Bee, sharing what she learned about how some schools in San Juan Unified are meeting the needs of students under extraordinary circumstances, the majority of whom are English language learners and refugees. You're listening to Insight on your NPR station, Cap Radio. I'm Vicki Gonzalez. Hi there. If you're enjoying Insight, we think you'll love our podcast, Blue Dot, with your host, that's me, Dave Shlom. Every week, we take a deep dive into science and nature, from the search for life beyond our pale blue dot in the vastness of space to the ecosystems we all depend on. You never know what you'll hear from the physics of Leonardo da Vinci to communications with humpback whales. Check out Blue Dot wherever you get your podcasts. 
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. You're listening to Insight here on CAP Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. California's Reparations Task Force is approaching a major milestone, a first-in-the-nation task force setting the legacy of harm caused by slavery, as well as reparations to repair the generational damage that it caused. In its two years since being signed into law, the nine-member task force is finalizing a report and recommendations for Black and African Americans who are descendants of slavery. Over the course of two days, starting tomorrow in Sacramento, the Reparations Task Force is expected to share its recommendations as well as hear from the community. The meeting will be open to the public and takes place at the California Environmental Protection Agency, Cal EPA. Joining us now is Annalise Finney, a reporter for KQED in the Bay Area, bringing us up to speed with the latest on the task force and what to expect from this upcoming meeting. Good morning, Annalise. Good morning, Vicki. So you've been covering this task force really since its inception. How big of a moment is tomorrow and Saturday? Well, it's a pretty big moment. It's the very last in-person meeting that the task force is having. They're now about at the midway of their last year. So the last time I spoke with you is the midway of their two-year process. And tomorrow, like you mentioned, they're expected to talk about what their recommendations are. They're close to finalizing them. They probably won't um, talk about the final recommendations quite yet. They do still have four months to really work those out, but they'll be going over that and then some of the other task force plans, including their public education plan or how they hope to help Californians understand this legacy of state-sanctioned discrimination against black communities here. Given that there's just so much to study and to unpack, I want a little bit of a statics check because the last time you joined us was back in September. So what has happened since then? Because there's been, I believe, two other task force meetings in Oakland in December and in San Diego in January. What developed from those meetings? Yeah. So like I said, at the last meeting, um, excuse me, at the last time we spoke, we were halfway through. They were beginning to look at what should recommendations to repair this harm really look like. Mm. And over the last two meetings, they broke it into kind of two main areas of recommendations. The first area addresses what the U.N. calls the cessation of harm. It's one of the main categories of reparations as defined under international law. And what that means essentially are policies that look at ending the harm that is still being caused today against the black community by policies that maybe are not racist in their text, but the way they're carried out have disproportionately impacted the black community negatively. So they have a whole host of policy recommendations they've been thinking about. Over the last two meetings, they were working them through. Um, And typically they address sort of these 13 areas of harm that the task force identified in its initial report. And those areas include things like political disenfranchisement, housing segregation, um, and separate and unequal education, among other things. The other area of recommendations that the task force was looking at during these last two meetings were things that would compensate the black community for wealth lost because of discriminatory policies. So, for example, if you were a homeowner in a neighborhood that was redlined and then an interstate highway was put down the middle of your main street in your community, how did that impact the wealth that you would have accumulated from your home if that hadn't happened? And those calculations are hard. They've been working with a team of economists who are digging through the numbers, trying to pull up whatever data they can to come up with sort of concrete numbers about the wealth lost and then make plans to 
provide that wealth to people who are still living in California today. Yeah, and even when they come up with these recommendations, it's also communicating them to the public. And you sent us a soundbite that really kind of captures that. It's Donald Tamaki, who's an Asian-American member of the Reparations Task Force. And he's really talking about the public concerns over public opinion and potential roadblocks in legislation. The public education part, um, respectfully, I think it's really critical. If we don't move the needle of public opinion, it's going to make legislation difficult. We've got to bring the public along. And it's really important to mention that reparations have been done in the past, including Japanese Americans who were incarcerated during World War II. How instrumental is it for this task force to learn from the past? It's very instrumental. And actually, the public education part is a direct learning. The reparations plan for Japanese Americans after their incarceration during World War II included three parts. One was cash payments, one was an official apology, and the other was a federal grant program that provided money to people who wanted to create public education materials. So that could be a curriculum that would be used in a classroom or a documentary or a public art project that would help the public understand what had happened during World War II and how it was that collectively we allowed for this type of discrimination to take place. So as part of this reparation program for Californians who are descended from African-American enslaved people, they're hoping to also have a grant program. And that grant program would operate very similarly to the to the civil liberties program that came out of the Japanese-American reparations program. Given that these two meetings that took place uh, in the last few months, one was in San Diego and one was in Oakland, their demographics do differ. San Diego has a 6% black population, according to the census. Oakland has a 22% black population. Do you think that difference influenced the responses from each community? Hmm, that's a good question. You know, I have to say I wasn't at the San Diego meeting, so I can't speak to who came to public comment at that meeting. But in Oakland, there was a pretty robust public showing. I think some people felt a little bit that, you know, Oakland, like you said, has this robust, active black community. And maybe there weren't as many representatives of the kind of civil institutions that are a big part of Oakland society at this meeting. And I think part of that at least the people that I spoke to there said that that was perhaps an issue with communications that, you know, there have been more people coming to these meetings, but still not enough people know that this process is happening in this state. Um, And that's also kind of why this public education campaign is going to be key if these reparations plans are going to be passed through the legislature. Um, But in Oakland, a city council member spoke um, at and basically at every in-person meeting, city council members, elected representatives from the local municipalities have come in and talked about their approach to reparations and what they would like to see happen in their communities. So compared to San Diego, I I can't really say what happened. But in Oakland, there was a showing and I think people wish it maybe was a little more robust. And while these meetings are happening, uh, one issue that has been brought up is eminent domain. And that is essentially the government essentially takes away private property for public use. And typically it can include payment of compensation. But when you talk about local representatives, State Senator Stephen Bradford said um, this at the Oakland meeting. I challenge you to show anywhere in California that eminent domain or urban renewal was done in white communities. And that's key. How does eminent domain relate to the research and the conversations that are taking place within the reparations task force? Yeah, so eminent domain is just one example of official government policies that disproportionately impacted the black community in California. And part of that impact was denying people wealth. It was, you know, eminent domain is this process of the government 
essentially taking somebody's land, providing them compensation. But many people say that the compensation is not what it should have been and doesn't equal the wealth that was lost to the community by not having those properties anymore. Are we in a moment right now where reparations are taking center stage and are other states or even local municipalities, you know, looking to this statewide task force to address their own questions and uh, of reparations? Yeah, you know, I think the task force has always understood part of its job to be to inspire other reparations around the country. And I think ultimately the goal is to have a federal reparations program. H.R. 40 is a federal reparations bill that has been in the kind of kicking around um, the U.S. Congress for a long time. It hasn't gotten traction and, and recently it's stalled. But the idea is to kind of encourage other people to do this sort of reflective work and ask what harm occurred to the black community here? How did it happen? And what can we do to make it better? Given that this is a historic task force, I mean, this might be a hard question to answer, but did this has this gone as you expected since you've really followed it since the beginning? Well, you know, it's hard to say. It's like you said, it's historic. It's the first of its kind. We can look at things like the Japanese-American reparations process to get a sense of, you know, what this might have looked like. But the task force, as it is now, is on track to finish its work on the deadlines that were set out for it. One big development that happened um, in San Diego is that the task force voted on whether or not it would ask the state legislature to extend its tenure an extra year. Now, that extension wouldn't change any of their deadlines. Their recommendations to the legislature would still be due at the end of this coming June. But an extra year would give task force members time to sort of shepherd those recommendations through the legislature. They've come up with dozens of policy recommendations, and they're going to need legislators and lawmakers generally to take these on, to refine them further, to write the laws, and then to lobby for them to be passed into law for, from the bill stage. And that's a lot of work. And so they want to stay together for an extra year to make sure that happens. So they, you know, the task force can't decide on its own to extend its charter. This has to be something that's approved by the state legislature. And Senator Bradford, whose clip you recently played, has introduced a bill into the Senate to extend the task force work for an extra year. So I would say it, you know, is going as planned, but they want a little extra time to make sure they can give those reparations the send off they want them mm. to have in order to be successful. Finally, I mean, you're in Sacramento because you're going to be going to those meetings Friday and Saturday. Um, what's on the agenda? What, what do you what do you hope to see and to take in? Yeah. So a big topic of conversation at these meetings is going to be the implementation of these policy proposals. So kind of that, but I just mentioned that, like, how do we get this from this document that we're going to send to the legislature to actually being broken out into separate policy, excuse me, into separate bills and then passed through the legislature. So they're going to hear from a panel of experts about that. And I think it's going to be a big focus of conversation. Another big thing is that public education plan that I was mm -hmm. talking to you about there expected to announce a, uh, a partnership with UC Berkeley's School of Education to develop a curriculum using that interim report that details the state's involvement in, in kind of perpetuating white supremacy throughout the state into kind of bite-sized activities that students in our public schools and in our private schools can do to learn about this history and, and really integrate this knowledge into our understanding of who we are as a state. 
Well, Annalise, thank you for following along and breaking it down for us. Thank you, Vicki. Annalise Finney is a reporter for KQED, covering California's reparations task force, studying the systemic impact of slavery on African Americans and creating recommendations for reparations. You're listening to Insight here on CAP Radio. We're going to continue this conversation with Dr. Jovan Scott Lewis, an associate professor and chair of the Department of Geography at UC Berkeley and member of the California Reparations Task Force. Professor Lewis, Good morning. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Vicky. Thanks for having me. What led to you becoming part of this nine-member task force? Sure. So, you know, my my research, you know, focuses on the histories of discrimination, um, in particular, the area of, you know, racialized impoverishment in African-American communities. And so a part of that is me thinking about reparations. How do we remedy those historical harms and, and those conditions and so, to be frank, I was asked to interview um, for a spot on the task force, which I, I happily accepted, and I was very pleased um, to learn that I was, you know, accepted as a governor appointee to the task force. It's one thing to to have an idea to pen legislation to get it signed into law. That is a feat in right. and of itself, right? But in practice, has this task force been effective? It really has. You know, one of the things that you know, my research has has focused on is is how do we actually conceptualize what it means to provide reparations? Um, you know, and because there has been such little action on this front in the United States, a lot of my work prior to joining the task force was speculative. Um, what could be done? What should be done? And so, you know, one of the reasons why I joined was I wanted to actually, you know, do some of the work of of materializing, you know, some of those ideas. And what I found is that we've been very effective at both providing an account of the historical and contemporary harms that African-Americans in the state of California um, have faced and, and, and continue to face in many ways, and also thinking very deeply and seriously about the appropriate remedies to those harms. And so I would say really and truly, we've been very effective um, at attending to those harms and thinking about policies um, and, and remedies. Annalise brought up an important point that there are challenges in the future that are outside the task force. What is your confidence that the research and the recommendations that come from you and your task force colleagues will really rise above bureaucratic gridlock political hurdles and actually be implemented? So, you know, I'm I am confident that what we will be putting forward in the next few months will be a thorough and considerate set of proposals. You know, the idea is that we want to first, you know, really provide adequate care and service, you know, to the communities that have been harmed. And we want to do so in a way that will actually, you know, go about the business of providing remedy to them. And so, you know, we are working on, you know, a, a, a very robust set of uh, proposals across a dozen areas of, of harms. And we are thinking very carefully about what, you know, can be done, you know, at the state level. And so I, I think that, you know, besides politics and outside of, you know, what we can think of as the varied public opinion, the proposals that we're going to put forward really, you know, will be something that will be implementable. Um, the question, of course, is, you know, will the state's leaders, elected leaders, um, be willing to implement it? Um, and will the public, you know, really find it within you know their hearts and i say that intentionally 
find it within their hearts to recognize the the historical harms that you know their fellow you know California residents um, in this injured community have experienced and support the work of the elected officials. Are you confident that your task force will come up with recommendations by this summer, or would you like it to be extended another year? No, the recommendations the recommendations will be will be presented on time. You know, we've we've done a tremendous amount of work um, as a task force and with the support of the DOJ, um, where we have dozens, you know, I think almost 80 members of the, of, of the DOJ helping us, you know, draft these policies. Um, so we're definitely on time. You know, we are we are considering what we voted to extend the life of the task force to keep us as a body um, for another year. So so that we can support the, the state in implementing, you know, if, if we are needed to provide clarification or feedback on the process, we want to make sure that we're available um, to provide that. But as far as the actual recommendations, they are they are they will be ready on time um, as of the, the July one uh, deadline. Well, let's get to the last in-person meeting, which takes place tomorrow or starts tomorrow and continues to Saturday in Sacramento, and which is also open to the public. You're going to be discussing five key questions which relate to damage timeframes, residency requirements, lineage of slavery and compensation. How did the task force come to a conclusion to define these five categories? Sure. So before I answer, I want to I want to clarify that tomorrow is not our last in-person meeting. Um, or, or this weekend, um, we have a, a virtual meeting in April, we have a virtual meeting in May, but we will be coming together again in person for our final meeting in June. So the, the location has not yet uh, been determined, but we will be, we will, we will be meeting once more um, in person in June. Um, and so the five areas, you know, the five areas largely are, you know, derived from the mandate that we were provided, you know, through and from AB 3121, which is the bill that formed the reparations task force, you know, within AB 3121, um, it, it, it laid out very clearly what our scope of responsibility, you know, was. And, and so many of those areas really, you know, come from uh, the bill that formed the task force. A topic that we discussed was eminent domain, and something that Mm -hmm. developed recently was Bruce's Beach. It was an unprecedented first-of-its-kind reparations to the Bruce family, which saw a Los Los Angeles County, rather, return a beachfront land that was seized. Um, Was this a step forward in the right direction? Do you think we're going to see more of this form of reparations? I definitely think it was, you know, a long overdue remedy to the Bruce family. Uh, what we have to recognize is that there are, you know, many experiences and accounts similar to the Bruce's, uh, you know, experience. And so it, it certainly is a step in the right direction, but we have to think about scale. You know, um, we're talking about eminent domain. You know, we're talking about the fact that, you know, a lot of property was taken from African-Americans in this state. A lot of communities were demolished as a result of various development projects in the state. Um, and they happened, you know, that development happened, you know, disproportionately, you know, as a consequence of dispossession for the African-American community. And so certainly Bruce's Beach is a step in the right direction. But, you know, that was that was a remedy for a, a particular family. Um, what we need to focus on is is exactly how the state had a part in a really wholesale kind of dispossession of African-American property, you know, throughout its history. 
I mean, you're talking about at that time, you know, uh, dreams and livelihoods were also destroyed. It wasn't just property. Mm-hmm. Given that the Bruce family, I mean, many no longer live in California. They were able to sell the land for $20 million, but, you know, also never realized the dreams of the original owners who helped create a small resort for black residents. How do you view the sale of the land back to Los Angeles County? And does it change the way we should view what reparations should be? So, you know, again, the return of the land to the Bruce uh, family, right, really, really was a reparative act for the family. Um, You know, but it doesn't represent, to my mind at least, what we as a task force are thinking of as, as reparations, you know, which is, again, thinking about how the entirety of the eligible community of African-Americans have, you know, been impacted by successive waves of of anti-Black discrimination um, in the state's history. And so it's appropriate, you know, for the Bruce family to do what they want to do with the property that was rightfully theirs. Um, You know, there's no expectation of what um, they should do, you know, given that they as a family had their family's property returned to them, you know, and property that was wrongfully uh, taken. Now, what we should think of though is reparations is about responding to the historical harms um, that the particular community in question you know have faced now if we are to think about what you know was promised to these you know members of these communities which is you know freedom liberty you know the, the full endowment of the rights of citizenship then reparations you know alongside the kind of policies of guarantees against repetition of harms, you know, beyond that, what reparation should do is actually fulfill that promise of liberty. And so what that means is there's also freedom of choice. Um, to deny a freedom of choice to, you know, the eligible community for any compensation that's awarded, for example, um, would effectively be to undermine the principle of reparations to my mind. Hmm. Finally, Professor Lewis, you know, a big component of this task force has been listening to the community. How has that experience been? Well, it's it's been complicated. Um, there's a lot of hurt in the African-American community in the state of California. And I think, you know, I'm not a native Californian. And what I do know effectively as an outsider is that California has a particular narrative. You know, there's the, the notion of a progressiveness, you know, of the kind of liberty of Western expansion that we know historically is associated with with the state. Um, but it's been hard to actually, you know, be properly confronted with the very deep discrimination um, against this community that really begins with the state's, uh, you know, founding and how it continuously has been reformulated, um, you know, through Jim Crow, through housing discrimination, through mass incarceration, through contemporary um, employment and educational discrimination, through the ongoing impact of gentrification, what we what we were confronted with and what really was a challenge was seeing and, and reckoning with the fact that this community has continued to face harms, um, you know, since the entire, you know, since their their arrival in the state. Um, and we have to kind of think about how to how to, you know, to process that, you know, as a as a state. And I, and I really do 
um, you know, encourage, you know, California residents to to read the interim report that the task force put out uh, last year, or at least the executive summary, which is about 30 pages long, um, to get a sense as to exactly what, you know, their fellow, you know, Black Californians have faced and continue to face. Professor Lewis, thank you for the time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Dr. Javon Scott Lewis is an associate professor and chair of the Department of Geography at UC Berkeley and a member of California's Reparations Task Force. You're listening to Insight here on CAP Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. We're back in just a moment. Hi there. If you're enjoying Insight, we think you'll love our podcast, Blue Dot, with your host, that's me, Dave Shlom. Every week, we take a deep dive into science and nature, from the search for life beyond our pale blue dot in the vastness of space to the ecosystems we all depend on. You never know what you'll hear from the physics of Leonardo da Vinci to communications with humpback whales. Check out Blue Dot wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Welcome back to Inside on Cap Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. This week, California's emergency declaration for the COVID-19 pandemic came to an unceremonious end. Many of the laws, regulations, ordinances, and recommendations that have been in place for the past three years are now gone. While the most severe aspects of the pandemic may be behind us, the fact remains that COVID is still here. But when we reflect over the past three years, and it really is kind of a blur, we'll never forget all that we went through from social distancing, virtual learning, bare shelves at stores, scrambling for toilet paper and paper towels, long lines to get tested or even get a vaccine. Those memories will stay with our generation forever. Over the past three years, CAP Radio's visual journalist, Andrew Nixon, has been documenting those moments and memories through his camera lens. And if you're a visitor to our website, capradio.org, you have no doubt seen his work. Andrew just published his latest digital article, which posted this morning, and joins us now with a retrospective of some of the work during the pandemic. Hey, Andrew. Hi, Vicki. So you've been a visual journalist at Cap Radio for almost 12 years. What have the past three years been like for you as a photojournalist? It's been very different. I mean, uh, photojournalism is usually done in person, right? It's done in confined spaces, and it's done over long periods of time in those confined spaces. So that kind of all went out the window when uh, when the COVID arrived, and we decided that, that would those were all things we shouldn't be doing. <laughs> Yeah. And you had a professional duty of, you know, photojournalists capture history. And this was a huge defining moment in history. But you also had personal risks as well. How did you manage those risks of exposing yourself, especially in the early days of the pandemic and and actually accomplishing getting your job done? Well, we didn't know really at first how it was spreading. So, you know, the the masking and the the social distancing and stuff, that wasn't that wasn't immediate. There were suggestions, but it wasn't 
it wasn't as clear as it is now how you actually contract it or spread it to others. And so I just kind of limited my time with people and limited my exposure to others just in general because I didn't want to be spreading this to everyone I encountered, you know, so. Yeah. What do you know now about our community that maybe you didn't know pre-pandemic? I think um, I think everything just kind of turned up uh, quite a bit. You know, it was just more intense and, and stuff came out that um, was always there. But, you know, I think I think the people figured out what their best um, actions would be and, and to, you know, to help, help the community or help themselves or, or the families and, and, uh, and they did them. And, um, I think that shows, I, I really don't like these the term resilience, but it showed a lot of resilience in the community as a whole. How about yourself personally? Um, you're still human. <laughs> yeah, I am still human, I guess. Yeah. They always say, uh, you know, you're a journalist, but you're also a human. But, um, I, I guess, uh, you know, being, um, you know, running, running solo for, for months on end, you know, that was, uh, that was difficult, but you know, that zoom was great and phone calls were great and texting was great and, uh, keeping in touch with people early on. Um, you know, I think if it wasn't for all the uncertainty and fear (laughs) around a, a pandemic, it would have been a more, uh, enjoyable experience, but, uh, the, that, that, that part of it, the, the, the being in touch with people, but, um, but yeah, it was it was uh, my family's local, and I didn't want to get them sick. I'm I'm kind of a support um, if things go south, and uh, and uh, I just just wanted to keep my health in case you know my family needed me for mm-hmm. something. Anytime I see you inside or outside of work, you usually have a camera strapped to you. You you bring it along with you. So you've taken so many photos over the past three years, hundreds, thousands, and we're going to go through some of them in just a moment. But was there a single photo or a single scene that will kind of stay with you forever? I think some of the uncertainty around the vaccination will stay with me. Um, that's actually one of the photos in the set we're going to talk about, or that's in the set that we, can, we can't talk about, um, is uh, just just some of the vaccination stuff uh people being uncertain but you know trusting in the trusting in the vaccine to hopefully get us out of this mess well let's go through some of them right now the first photo that we're going to talk about if you go to the state capitol the, the the capitol museum there's that big golden bear and this was before the official stay-at-home order about a week before talk to us about this photo um yeah there's a a bear outside the governor's office called back that's nicknamed bacteria bear because people touch it and and uh, field trips, the kids all mob the bear and touch the bear. And it's just, people call it bacteria bear because they're like, don't touch the bear, you'll get sick. And they put um, some uh, kind of velvet ropes around the bear so people would not touch it with, with instructions to wash your hands more often. And I think that really illustrated, I mean, often when I go and I photograph politicians at the state capitol, if they're near bacteria bear, um, you know, th- there's people always touching the statue, but here there's there's some some distance. Mm-hmm. And we didn't know what was to come. I mean, we knew things were were kind of escalating, but that you know, one week later, the stay at home order would be issued by the governor. Th- another uh, you know disheartening um, piece, a photo that really just brought back a ugh, like a sigh was the empty shelves with toilet paper and 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 hand sanitizers and things like that. The the panic buying essentially um, talked to us about the photo that you reminded us of back in March of 2020. Yeah, I went into a Target and took a photo um, 
you know, it's a scene that everyone had seen. Um, but, you know, like you're saying, for the history of it, I thought it was an important photo to bring back. It's showing the panic buying of toilet paper. <laughs> you know, it, it became a meme. But it was a very serious moment for a lot of people. And and I think, uh, yeah, it was definitely um, uh, concerning to see how people were behaving around uh, the rationing of certain things. These photos really bring us back to the myriad of impacts that the pandemic had. One of them was the fact that a lot of people couldn't go to work. Food banks were in need, you know, more than ever or in recent years. But a lot of volunteers are often seniors and they were considered high risk. And you take this photo of the National Guard going in to help food banks. Yeah, uh, National Guard Guard members from... um all over the state had come to Sacramento and, and other cities uh, to to pack food and uh, and do the do the volunteer tasks that were usually handled by um, mostly seniors um, and uh, that kept people home and um, and they really risked themselves. I mean, if you look in the photo, they're they're wearing gloves but not masks because again, we didn't know exactly how this was spreading. And uh, yeah, it was uh, it was definitely a um, uh, an odd moment. And, and looking back on it, I was like, why was I there? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, a big part of the last three years is, um, you know, just kind of having tough conversations with, with loved ones or having disagreements about, you know, the pandemic and whether we are doing things the right way. And one piece of that were demonstrations and protests. And you capture one of those as one of your top 10 photos in the last three years where there were protesters demanding an end to the stay at home order. What stands out to you about this photo? Um, the streets were empty that day, except for in front of the Capitol. Um, and people were protesting the stay-at-home order. Um, there were a lot of arrests, I believe 32 arrests that day. Uh, this May 1st, 2020. And um, yeah, the image is a, you know, a line of police, just, just like any demonstration. Um, and uh, But I think what kind of stands out about this image is that one of the, the officers is wearing a mask uh, who's turned towards the camera. You can see that they're um, that was kind of a uh, surprising thing to see at the time, which was, oh, oh yeah, this isn't this isn't just any protest. This is a, a you know a COVID stay-at-home order protest. Finally, I want to end with what you touched upon at the beginning, because students and children were were severely impacted over the last three years from not being able to have these really milestone moments of graduation or prom to go having distance learning and then going back into the classroom, but having to go through health screenings. Let's end on the last photo where we talk about vaccines and you and you use a, a picture of a student that that was getting vaccinated in Sacramento. Oh, uh, yeah, there's a, a, a girl, she's nine years old, uh, she's getting vaccinated. And, and I think the concern was for her was that her older brother had gotten the vaccine recently and uh, it, her mother was concerned that he had had a bad reaction to it. Mm-hmm. And so, but the mandate was, it looked like there was a mandate. It was then lifted, but um, that for her to go back to school, she needed to get this vaccine. And it was, so it was that, that sort of... Um, uh, tension that that was coming through, and she's she's just bawling her eyes out, and her mom's comforting her, and they're giving her the shot at the same time. So. <laughs> 
Thank you so much, Andrew, for sharing these images. And you can see them online right now at capradio.org. Andrew Nixon is our visual journalist for Cap Radio. And I'm Vicki Gonzalez. Have a great day. We'll catch you back here on Monday. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.